Hello and welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast where we talk about the science behind your favourite TV shows. I'm Karen. I'm Emma and oh my God, (laughs) (laughs) this episode of the podcast is called The One Where because we are talking about the science behind everyone's favourite caffeine fueled sitcom. It's Friends. We had to do Friends at some point, didn't we? (laughs) We did indeed. We did. Such a great old school show isn't it it's it is and um, we originally did this show as part of swansea science festival so thanks very much swansea for having us uh we thought hey we really enjoyed that so we'll give this to you in your ears as a podcast too yeah absolutely so i guess the first big question to ask is how you doing could i be any more excited <laughs> i love this script it's absolute nonsense it's pure it's pure friends yeah So obviously we're going to throw in some show quotes on the way through and we want you to have a look out for them as we're going through the show. So it should be exciting. Yeah, see how many you spot. We'll give you a list at the end as we normally do. But this Friends was actually a really good one for finding quotes. Sometimes we struggle, (laughs) but this was a really good one. So listen, Friends re-entered many of our lives during the lockdowns, Mm. didn't it? I would say the show experienced a bit of a renaissance. Yeah, the cast reunion. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like the most streamed thing on Netflix again. So, Karen, what's your relationship with Friends? Do you like it? Did you watch it? Did you watch it then? Did you watch it now? Um, well, I kind of dipped in and out at the time because I think it was on Channel 4 and you kind of like picked up an episode here and then. I wasn't a person who watched it every week, and but it was it is that type of show you can just dip in and out of, isn't it? It's brilliant. Mm. But as soon as it was on Netflix, you know, like you said, over that kind of lockdown period, I watched the whole series through twice and just laughing. I mean, twice. some of the jokes. That is a lot. Not aged, not aged so well. No. I've seen it twice. Some of the humour hasn't yeah. aged very well. No, I, no. I did the same. I kind of watched it a little bit at the time. Um, I remember the drama when the last episode ever aired. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I so I watched it again when I knew that we were going to do this show. Mm-hmm. And it's it's still, a lot of it's really, really funny. A lot of yeah. a lot of it is timeless. But yeah, some of it's very much not timeless. <laughs> <laughs> and also, it was really funny to see the fashion. That was quite mm. interesting, but I have to admit they were all incredibly skinny and I didn't enjoy um, particularly, you know, post-lockdown where I turned into a slob and just ate my body weight in everything I could get my hands on. Didn't massively enjoy only seeing stick-thin women uh, portrayed in it, if I'm honest. I don't think you do it's, that these it days. It was very much the age of size zero mm. at the time. In and it was really undiverse. It? It was that, yeah, that was the thing. A very, very undiverse show. For New York City... It was, yeah, yeah really, mm. I didn't, <laughs> really didn't represent <laughs> what I imagine real New York City to have been by then. Uh, no, I don't think so. No. No. Anyway, listen, let's get on with it because we've got mm-hmm. 18 pages of script to go through, front <laughs> and back. Front and back, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so linked to that, I suppose we ought to really start with the most important question. Were they on a break? Well, were they? Were they indeed? Uh, mm-hmm. I think they were, but there we go. Yeah. YouGov actually did a poll on this. Of all the things mm-hmm. that they do polling on, they actually polled <laughs> and they called it the one where we did a poll on friends and 61% <laughs> of people said that they were on a break. Yeah. And so, you know, we were on a break. 
I want to just confirm that although I, I said that they were on a break, I still think Ross's behaviour was absolutely atrocious. Uh, it was, well, it was the fact that it was just immediately. They were on a break, but it was literally, you've just literally Within hours, yeah, somebody that's, else that's is in his bed. Great. No. That's absolutely great. appalling. Mm-hmm. Sackable offence mm-hmm. for sure. So, yeah. Karen, which friend are you if you had to put yourself in a box? Well, now we having said all of that about Ross, I am probably Ross because I am an absolute <laughs> geek. Do you know what? So, uh, you actually I are Ross. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. Um, no, you know, all the best things the about Ross, you the are. Good, geeky things about Ross, that's me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really loving mm-hmm. some odd science and like happily being <laughs> the nerdiest one in every room. That's yeah. absolutely you. Yeah. Absolutely. Really comfortable with it. Yeah, no worries at all. I've had to grow into a Ross, to be fair. But yes, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Most people think that they are a Chandler or a Monica, mm, which I which can is really see. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. But interestingly, Chandler's the most popular friend and Monica mm-hmm. is the least popular friend. So there are a lot of people think they're Monica but don't like that, which I can see. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? The fact that they feel like they are like Monica. Maybe, maybe it's that kind of irritating aspect she's got to her personality, isn't it? Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, yeah the kind of controlling um, side of things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So so from that kind of polling situation, I guess we ought to go into a little bit of the science, hadn't we? Absolutely. And, um, there was a data analyst who looked at the big data of uh, friends, you know, like you do, because there's a, to be fair, there's a lot of episodes. So, you know, mm. that's a lot of data. Um, and they analysed all of the episodes to see which character was actually the lead character. And they analysed the number of appearances, the number of lines, how many words even. I mean, how many words for each that character? Is- that How is a hefty document. Yeah, and it was really, really close between Ross and Rachel. But Ross edged it in the end, which is really interesting. But it, it was definitely all about Ross and Ra- Rachel's relationship. It was. It? it started mm. and ended with Ross and Rachel. Yeah. We got distracted along the way. Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> there was all these other things that happened, yeah. but it was definitely few babies, Ross and few Rachel. marriages, <laughs> but it was always, always Ross and Rachel. Yeah. Mm. So go on then. Let's take a look at the science in a little bit more detail. Why... Culturally and socially mm-hmm. for us as human beings, why is having friends something that's really important? Well, actually, the human brain has evolved to thrive in these kind of social environments. And it's been shown in research that friendship leads to the release of chemicals like dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. And we talked a lot about this in Love, in our Love Island episode, actually. But these are all the kind of feel-good mm. hormones, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. And interestingly, a study carried out in 2016 found a really odd... It was a correlation between your kind of social network size, so how many friends you had, and your pain tolerance levels. And there was a, so basically, if you had a really high pain tolerance level, they could predict that you had more friends. Which is really weird, isn't it? Yeah. How would... I need also, some more friends. What kind of study is that? You know, it's like, right, we'd like to... <laughs> I don't know why they decided to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. It's just like, well, we're going we're gonna, to uh, cause some pain, but, and then we're going to ask you how many friends Maybe the got. researchers were, just didn't have very many friends themselves and they wanted to, to see whether there was any benefit. <laughs> And they were like, let's just electrocute some people that have got really big <laughs> see, friendship See groups. how much pain they can and- <laughs> endure and then ask them how many friends they've and got then, and then yeah. fine. It's like, oh, you can endure lots of pain because you've got many friends. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to scuttle back off to my recording studio on my own now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if we go way back, though, I mean, if we're talking about friends, um, we're going back to Greek philosophy, believe it or not. Wow. And we're talking Aristotle. I mean, if you're going to talk Greek philosophers, you might as well talk Aristotle. Get him in. Yeah. So he divides friends into three different types. He says, first of all, you've got these kind of utility or useful friends. 
And they, you've got no regard for that person at all other than they're useful at that particular time um, and it's easily broken off when it ceases to be useful. So it's like, you know, you might have a group of friends that you play sport with or a group of friends that, you know, um, a lot of this happens to a lot of mums actually, is you meet the other mums outside school and then you'll go for a coffee and you'll be good friends. But once that child meeting outside school thing's gone, the usefulness of that friend ah. isn't there anymore. And therefore, you're not. You find out that actually, you know, that's 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 ending. Maybe that you don't transcend because, that. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's a utility friendship. Um, the next one is is pleasure friendship, and this is kind of associated a lot with younger people. And this is based on fleeting emotions, which is why you can see it's about younger people, can't you? Um, and that's where you enjoy the shared activity really, really well. So a lot of kids will do gaming, online gaming with people, and they'll be really good friends with these online gamers. And it's a very emotional connection mm. with these people. Um, so that kind of happens. And then the third one is the one we should all aspire to, which is called the pursuit of good. Oh, That sounds nice, doesn't it? The pursuit of good. And this is where you have this kind of perfect friend relationship. Um, and you care for the person themselves, not just the use that they have for you, Aww. which is a little bit questionable about the other types of friendship, isn't it? But the, you know, there you go. When you, yeah, when you put it into really cynical terms, mm. it makes you sound like a bit of a psychopath. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I think if we all sat down and we looked in our phone contact mm. list, I think we'd all be able to identify our usefulness friends. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and it's fine, you know, because they're, they're making use of you in exactly the same way, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, and it's just that kind of social interaction and it's good for your mental health and that kind of thing. So, you know. Yeah, totally. Good. So uh, so mm. I think what you're saying here, you and Aristotle are telling me that a good friend <laughs> is someone who is going to support you when it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year. Yes. They'll be there for you when the, when rain, the rain starts, starts to, pour. to pour. Very nice. We had, to, we had to find a way to get it in, didn't we? Well, yeah, we did, yeah. Good job we're laughing. Anyway, um, <laughs> the entire kind of point of Friends was was really to make people laugh, wasn't it? It's very much a sitcom. It's very lighthearted. Mm. It does cover some deep topics, but overall, the aims of every episode are for enjoyment and for giggles, are they not? So yeah. science and humour are quite tightly linked. We, we, you know, we've mm. been interested in studying humour and laughter for a long time. So can science tell us why it is that we actually find things funny? Yes. Now we talked about this in much more depth than we're going to talk about now in our Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode. Yes. Pop on back and listen to that one. That was a really fun one. We spoke to an actual researcher who actually researches these things. Yeah. Um, it's a really, really interesting conversation. So if you're interested in why we find things funny, do go back and listen to that episode. It's really good. Um, but basically they were saying that there are three different theories of comedy, aren't there? Yes. So I'll give you a quick rundown of these three and then we can see how they fit into the show. So the first one is superiority. And this is the idea that um, a character is there for you to feel superior to. And mm -hmm. because you kind of look at them and the way they're doing their life or making their decisions, you go, oh, I would never do anything like that. What an idiot. <laughs> and that's kind of what, what brings the humour element to you. Mm. Then there's incongruity. And I think the incongruity is my personal favourite form of, uh, of comedy. And this is where mm. something basically does or happens that's entirely unexpected. You're kind mm. of set up for one thing to happen and then something totally different, something totally incongruous happens instead. So like um, something I did the other day was I went down into the fridge to go try and get some milk. And what mm. I realised I'd done was I had put the porridge oats in the fridge and I'd left the milk in the cupboard <laughs> from when I'd made breakfast. But the very idea of opening the fridge and mm. just completely unexpectedly seeing the porridge 
that's a very boring version of what incongruity <laughs> is. When you're expecting something, you get something totally different and it catches you off guard and it's very funny. Yeah. Yeah. And the final one is repression. Mm. So that is the idea that we're all repressed when we're talking about things that are not supposed to be, you know, mentioned in public. So things like mm. sex and poo. Yeah, <laughs> those those are two of the main things. Farts, sex, and poo. Kind of um, yeah, so so toilet mm. humor and kind of smutty yeah. humor, um, and we release that repression by enjoying that kind of comedy. Yeah, and you find that most sitcoms actually a mix of all three. I mean, all of the sitcoms and the comedy programs we've looked at have definitely got a mixture of all three, mm. even if the writers hadn't consciously, you know, put that in. Yeah, definitely. So if we're looking through the lens of these three at Friends. We've mm. definitely got Joey as the superiority, yeah. as in we personally feel superior to Joey a lot, but also Chandler also acts as us in many of those situations as he mm. also tries to feel superior to Joey quite a lot. Exactly. And that's that's a real, really good incongruous relationship. Yeah, Joe, uh, Joey, loads of, loads of daft yeah. situations he gets himself into. I mean, my favourite is when he ends up inside that cupboard, you know, when the, when he's trying to sell that big unit, TV oh unit, and he ends up stuck inside it and that person nicks everything else in the room yeah. just inside that cupboard. So yeah. feel very superior in that moment, mm. definitely. Yeah. I mean, incongruity is used quite a lot in the show. Uh, so, mm. for example, there's the famous Rachel quote, what if I don't want to mm-hmm. be a shoe? What if I want to be a purse, you know, or a hat? Mm. And and that's quite interesting. It's an interesting take on incongruity because um, incongruous things in most cultures will consider material possessions and moral values at the opposite end of the scale. Mm. So the reason why it's incongruous is because she's mixed together these moral values and material possessions and made a connection between the two of them. Mm. Um, and that's why it's in Congress. Yeah, so she's trying um, to explain to her dad, like, I don't want to be, for lack of a better term, basic anymore. Mm. <laughs> um, I, You know, I want to go out and find my way and be independent. And all of this stuff screams, you know, growth and independence and, and, and um, all of these exciting things. But she, yeah, she's using the metaphor of like shopping which just really flips it. Exactly. And it's it makes her appear really superficial as a result. Mm. And she's trying to be deep and meaningful, but it's that kind the of... frame yeah, of reference is, <laughs> what can I buy in Macy's? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Mm. Time to pivot, I think. Nice. Let's talk about coffee. Mm. Because to be honest, they pretty much seem to pay rent in Central Park. They're, they're barely they're in their apartment. All the time, aren't they? How can it's they? All the time. I would be I mean, so wired you, and so poor if I spent that also, much time in a coffee shop. why don't they get kicked out? They only ever seem to have one or two coffees. And Rachel gives it, seems to give it to them for free initially, doesn't she? But she, when she stops working there, what then? It's Gunther. Gunther fancying uh, Rachel. He he's does, the, he's the in. He? Yeah. Mm. Bless him. Um, so, you know, we know that that's where they get together at the very beginning in the first episode. That's where Rachel comes in. It's really, really important, isn't it, in the series? Mm. So we ought to talk about caffeine, I guess. Absolutely. Let's talk about caffeine. Yeah. So it's, we all know it's a stimulant. It affects the central nervous system. We know it can increase blood pressure and heart rate. Um, but it's actually an adenosine blocker. So what it does is it attaches to the adenosine receptors and it causes neurons in the brain to to increase the amount of firing that they do. Mm. This in turn causes the pituitary gland to release hormones and these hormones trigger the production of adrenaline. And it's adrenaline that causes the increased heart rate and all of those kind of things that you you feel if you drink way too much coffee. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how they slept. I don't remember them no. ordering a decaf for once. No. <laughs> no. So apparently 99% of all caffeine that you ingest is absorbed and it's distributed to all of your tissues and organs. Scary, so it's not it? just, you know, the feeling of like, oh, my brain feels awake. Mm. Your heart and everything else is going on, you know, every, everything is being affected by caffeine. Yeah. So with that in mind, and also based mm. on the rate that we seem to drink caffeine um, in Western society, it was probably, you can see why a lot of researchers have gone, yeah. what the hell is caffeine doing to our bodies? And there was an umbrella study in 2017 which had a look at over 200 meta-analyses. meta-analyses. That were looking at the effects of caffeine. And they found that, I mean, so roasted coffee contains a really complex mixture of over 1,000 bioactive components. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, A lot. And that's not just components, mm. that's bioactive components. That's things yeah. that are impacting you. Some of them, interestingly, have potentially therapeutic properties like they, you know, they can be antioxidants and some of them can be anti-inflammatory. Some are mm -hmm. anti-fibrotic and some even maybe have some anti-cancer effects, oh. which are great. That's why you see those headlines, isn't it? When they say, drink your coffee, it helps you prevent you getting cancer. Sponsored by Starbucks. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> so interestingly, coffee consumption more often is associated with benefits than it mm. is with harm across a That's range of health outcomes. But of course, that does entirely depend on how much you're drinking every day, <laughs> all the time versus, you know, like none or just like one cup and things. But luckily, mm. there, was, there was no consistent evidence of harmful associations between coffee consumption and health outcomes, which is the main thing. That's, that, for me, <laughs> is the yeah. takeaway that I want to hear. Um, <laughs> might be good for you, unlikely to be bad for you, unless, of course, yeah. you know, you're pregnant or something like that. Mm. Yeah. And, and randomly, there's a risk of fracture in women as well, increased risk of fracture in some women. So that's a bit strange. And it might be linked to osteoporosis, the menopause and that kind of thing, I guess. Oh, but right. Very strange, yeah. Um, but of course, like any drug, um, the more you drink, the more tolerant you become to its effects. And people metabolize caffeine at different rates. Mm. And caffeine, weirdly, has got a half-life in the body. So we measure caffeine levels by their half-life. Which is something we normally associate with radioactivity. So I enjoy exactly. this. <laughs> <laughs> so caffeine uh, in the body, its half-life is up to five hours. And the other half can take longer than five hours, obviously. Um, and caffeine is broken down by enzymes in the liver, very much like alcohol is. So if you think about when's the last time you have your last caffeine of the day, mm. it's going to take five hours for it to get to half the level of whatever you drank. So, you know, pretty much, I think in my body, uh, there's caffeine in my blood 100% of the time. You <laughs> drink caffeinated coffee like nobody I've ever met. Mm. I made a switch yeah. to decaf two years ago because my mm -hmm. energy levels were really inconsistent and I've found that I'm much, I'm sleeping better, I'm happier mm -hmm. and I'm, I am much more consistent throughout the day and throughout the weeks. But if I do need a cup of coffee, I have it at 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I don't, yeah. there's no way I'm having a cup, of, <laughs> a cup of coffee after dinner or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I really ought to, really ought to drink less coffee, I feel. <laughs> but anyway. But it's, mm. but it's got all of these positive benefits too. Mm, I know. <laughs> now, we know that caffeine in coffee comes from the coffee bean. Mm -hmm. But why do plants need to produce mm. caffeine in the first place? Which is, is quite, yeah. a cool, quite a cool question, this. It is a good yeah. question, isn't it? So we know that plants which need pollinators will compete for pollinators. Mm. Because yeah. there's only so many bees and insects in the world. Yeah. And bees in particular, if we're looking at pollinators are very mm -hmm. clever at remembering where they found pollen 
and they are likely to return reliably to not only certain areas, but actually certain flowers, particularly mm. if they offer caffeinated nectar. Yeah. So we're getting these we're getting these bees hooked on the sweet sweet <laughs> supply of caffeine, which is interesting. So um, studies have shown that flowers that do offer caffeinated nectar receive more pollination than non-caffeinated nectar-producing flowers, of which makes sense. You know, a plant will have high levels of caffeine as a result. It makes sense, yeah. doesn't it? Um, but caffeine is a methyl xanthine, and many methyl xanthines are used as pesticides by both humans and plants. So it may be that it's partly, you know, partly present there to act as a pesticide in the plant, as well as maybe this pollination job as well. So mm. that's cool. Double, double yeah. pronged. Yes. Shall we pivot again? <laughs> and let's, um, let's go to season one. Actually, let's travel through all 10 series and we're going mm. to share some of our favorite science bits as we go. So start with season one and the one with two parts, part one. What a catchy title. <laughs> this is the episode where we meet Phoebe's twin sister, Ursula. Oh, and I love it. classic, mm. Joey and Chandler can't tell them apart, probably because they're played no. by the exact same woman. <laughs> just hair up, hair down, hair up, hair down. <laughs> but it turns out that it's not just Joey and Chandler who can't tell the difference. Um, we always go back to the Ig Nobel Prizes because we love the Ig Nobel Prizes. And there were some Ig Nobel Prize winners who demonstrated that many identical twins can't tell themselves apart visually when they look at um, themselves in images, mm. which is really weird. But then I thought maybe it's because normally when you look at yourself, you're looking at yourself in a mirror. Yeah. So if you see a picture of yourself, it's almost like you're facing your twin. Ah, yes, of course, because you see? just kind of see the flip or a slightly different version of, yeah, yeah. interesting. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so it must be about confusion over mirror image versus staring at your sibling. Mm. Anyway, interesting. Well, continuing with Phoebe, I feel like we, we had to get to this sooner rather than later, but some of her most iconic scenes involve her singing at Central Park. Mm. So it's time for us to have a look at Smelly Cat. Mm. We heard it first in season two, believe it or not, uh, in, in the one with the baby on the bus. You see, I can't believe it wasn't until season two. No, me neither. Because there were like 24 episodes in a season or something, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, it really so... surprised me when we went back and looked for it. Yeah. Yeah. So we did some cat research. Of course. Like you do. Turns out there's a lot of cat research out there for lots of very random things. Um, so we know that cat urine and cat scent marking are very potent, particularly cat urine. Mm. It's very smelly. And to leave marking, what cats do is they produce philinine, phil which is like <laughs> feline with in. an in on the end, which is really difficult to say. <laughs> but it's an amino acid and it's, it's in the urine. But it breaks down to produce a thiol. Now, why do I always have to read all the really complicated words out? Honestly, I don't know. You <laughs> you write half of these scripts. I do write half the scripts, so you know. So it's 3-macapto-3-methyl-butan-1-ol, or from now on, MMB, because that's a lot easier to say. Um, and this is a cat pheromone. And it's highly volatile. It's got a very strong smell. And humans can smell it in very, very low concentrations. But then it's also found in Sauvignon Blanc. This is very distressing to me mm. because that's my favourite white wine. Does and it smell strangely? I have pee? never thought, God, this bottle smells a lot like cat piss. <laughs> Nor, and I've got loads of cats in my neighbourhood, which pee and poo in my garden. It's, it's mm. a real... Karen, you know very well it's a real bone of contention with me, mm, but I have yeah. never walked into my garden and gone, oh, fancy a glass of wine, actually. 
So I am sceptical or or mm. distressed by this fact. <laughs> Maybe in combination with all the other lovely smells from the Sauvignon Blanc, it's uh, kind of it's not yeah, obvious. it's hidden. It's hidden under the bouquet. Um, well, so this particular smell is more a smell that's produced by the cat as opposed mm. to the cat itself being a smelly cat. So yes. it's important at this point, we think, to say that if your cat is genuinely smelly, it probably needs to go to the vet because it's more more likely to be perhaps a sign of disease, like something like an infected wound or a dental disease or an ear infection. Yes. So do check so do. whether your cat is weeing a smell or just actually smells. <laughs> just actually smelling. Yeah. Okay. So uh, shall we go from that on to uh, a heartwarming episode? Um, the one with the prom video. Yeah. Now it's a well-known fact, of course, that lobsters fall in love and they mate for life. You can actually see old lobster couples walking around their tank holding claws, <laughs> according to Phoebe. Now you, you, now, you can't see us, but we are doing the holding claws uh, lobster movement. Not together. We we're in separate rooms. So we're just holding our own hands. <laughs> oh, yes. Doing, doing our own lobsters. <laughs> doing our own lobsters and holding claws. Um, now, I'm sorry to tell you, everyone, it's not true. That's unfortunate, isn't it? What, how disappointing is that? Yeah, I, I, it's, mm. I think that's one of the accidental, uh, like, fake science kind of urban legends that's probably evolved from TV shows where a writer's just kind of said something and then suddenly everybody else has gone, well, that's my piece of science that I now know. <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, run through the population. But interestingly, female lobsters actually, they release pheromones into the water to let males mm-hmm. know when they're ready. So when they fancy it, they go for a little, mm-hmm. oh, just send out the signal. And then the males yeah. will fight over who gets to mate with this lovely ready female lobster. Yeah, and then scarily, she molts. This is horrifying. So she molts her exoskeleton. So you can imagine how vulnerable she is at that stage. Mm. But luckily the male does guard her at that stage to make sure she doesn't get eaten or anything like that. Um, <laughs> or another he... male doesn't come in. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. Um, and he then deposits his sperm packets into her sperm pouch. Oh, stop. How civilised is that? Um, and then she'll use that sperm to fertilise the eggs and she'll carry them under her tail until they hatch. But disappointingly, baby lobsters don't look like tiny, tiny lobsters. They look like small larvae. That's yeah. disappointing, isn't it? Well, as do most things in the ocean. Yeah, this is true, yeah. Mm. Mm. But that, I'm still disappointed. Yeah, but then mm. the male, even more disappointingly, non-monogamous will just move on to the mm. next female. They really don't practice long-term monogamy. No, but he does protect her, you know, when she's at her most vulnerable. Yeah, until he's um, got rid of a sperm packet. Wham, bam, <laughs> thank you, ma'am. <laughs> so it's more like serial monogamy, which I guess is, sounds a little bit like the old Ross, doesn't it? So it does fit quite well, actually. Phoebe's nailed it there yeah, without maybe, even yeah. realising it. It very mm. intense, monogamous, and then on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. He is yeah. Ross the divorcer, is he not? So so actually he is her lobster, yeah. is what we're saying. He's her we lobster. He's her lobster. Oh. All right, well, mm. let's, let's stick with Ross for a bit. And I think it's actually mm. back to smells. We're going to <laughs> the one which I can't, I honestly can't watch this episode, it's too cringe. The one where Ross can't flirt. Yeah. And there's just a run of scenes where Ross is trying to prove that he can flirt and he's trying Mm -hmm. to give his number to or like trying to connect with the pizza delivery girl. And it's just awful. And like he's just running out of things to say. He's trying to keep her there in conversation. And eventually his brain goes to talking about the smell that they put in gas. Yeah, I know. Smelling gas, smelling gas. What are they adding to you? <laughs> See, combo of the two there. Yeah, marvelous. Very well done. Mm. Thank so, you. thank you. 
obviously this was one of the one of the times when a bit of actual science was in the script mm. so we had to have a look into it so it is true that natural gas has no odor so he was right on that one so it's a completely mm-hmm. harmless smell which is added artificially so that we can smell in case there's a gas leak very yeah, sensible and that's that's actually macaptan which is got a strong sulfur like smell and that's why we we sense it we can sense it in very small parts again mm. you know very very low levels you can smell it and mm. it's actually also a byproduct of the metabolism of asparagus. So we mm. talked about cat wee earlier, but I'm going to lower the tone even further and talk about human wee because actually some people can smell asparagus wee. Yeah, I mean, I can. Can you? And that makes you sound like you're going around sniffing people's wee, but it's not <laughs> like that at all. <laughs> it's just when you go to the loo, you can smell it. You can just smell it in the background, but not everybody can, which is interesting. So everybody produces the smell, but not everybody if you've can eaten. smell it. Yeah. asparagus recently it, absolutely yeah this is s- the same structure as macaptan so it's a methi- methane thiol and it appears in the urine as soon as 15 minutes after it's been eaten so you eat your asparagus 15 minutes later that's very quick this actually, chemical is in the urine yeah and um but as i said not everybody can smell it and it's all down to genetics if you can smell it or if you can't smell it so it's terribly middle class, but next time you have asparagus, see if you can smell asparagus, we. Well, perhaps you should do an experiment at home, get involved in yes. some science. I have to yeah. say I haven't eaten asparagus in a long time, but perhaps it might be mm. on my shopping list this week yeah. to yeah, do a little bit of home chemistry. Um, mm. Right, on with Ross <laughs> again, the main character, yeah. as we discovered <laughs> earlier. We can't also ignore the one with Ross's teeth. So no. Can you, like Ross, genuinely whiten your teeth so much that they glow in the dark? Because he, in an attempt to woo a lady, whitened mm. his teeth to the most extreme degree. Yeah, he did, yeah. yeah. Um, so that he ended up trying to hide them in darkened restaurants and then they glowed, basically, when she had a black light in her mm. apartment, which is, which is a bit ridiculous. I mean, who has black lights in their apartment? Um, but for comic effect, this lady did. And his teeth just absolutely lit up. Yes, it was literally glowing in the dark. Mm. So um, this is probably down to something called optical brightness. And some washing detergents contain them. So it, what they do in terms of washing detergents, and the idea is to make your whites look whiter than white mm. because, um, you know, because they're, they're reflecting as much light as possible. Um, and they glow under UV light. And what they do is they absorb the light in UV and violet parts of the electromagnetic spectrum and they re-emit them in the blue region. So that's why we can see them, because obviously we can't see UV light. No. Um, and this causes a whitening effect. So because it's like this slight bluey tone to it, that makes it look whiter to us than it actually ah. is. Mm. Now, teeth whitening products normally contain things like hydrogen peroxide or carbamide mm. peroxide, um, also the sort of thing you find in hair bleaching products. And the, f- the first one of those, hydrogen peroxide, is more fast acting. The second one is slower acting, but that actually creates less sensitivity because that's a problem that mm. a lot of people cite after they've had their teeth whitened. Uh, their teeth yeah. feel really, really sensitive. So teeth themselves, though, and this is one of the big issues, teeth are not actually white. The natural no. colour is very much an off-white, very similar mm. to bone. So no wonder Ross looked ridiculous when he sent. And a lot of Hollywood <laughs> celebrities also look a bit ridiculous when mm. they get their teeth whitened to pure white, white, white. It just doesn't look natural at all and it's very obvious. No. So the colour itself, if you look at the layers in your teeth, it's the dentin layer in your teeth that defines the colour. So you've got, mm. you've got enamel on the outside, but that's actually kind of translucent. And the dentin is the middle layer, which shows through the enamel. 
Yeah. And the actual color of your teeth depends on genetics as well as environmental factors, like how much coffee you drink, for example, Mm. or red wine. And there are four primary colors of teeth and they label them A to D. So A are reddish brown teeth, B are reddish yellow teeth, C are gray, and D are reddish grey, but they're all obviously off whites. Mm. So we say, you know, reddish grey. They but sound it's awful, don't they? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got different uh, lightness of shades within those colours. So you go for you go for the letter and then a particular number. Yeah, mm. and and the most common one apparently uh, is B one. So reddish yellow mm. light. Yes. Mm. Um, and they have these little tooth comparison racks that you put up next to your teeth, and they they try and whiten them only by a couple of steps not too extreme so that it's not too bad because obviously yeah you might look a bit mad yeah glow in the dark um so i guess it's time for the final pivot of the session to show uh to the show finale and the classic joey line you can't just give up is that what a dinosaur would do (laughs) i love it i don't think a dinosaur would give up you loved any mention of dinosaurs (laughs) wouldn't you but yeah i mean we well we had to touch on paleontology it it really Mm. genuinely is like the only real real science in the show Mm. um and it's made fun of endlessly which is a shame but um so paleontology as a field sits somewhere between biology and geology so it focuses Mm -hmm. on like the records of past life and most of the evidence that paleontology uses is fossil evidence and rocks yeah And actually, this part of the show, you know, the paleontology part includes my favourite nerdy joke. And it's a full on nerd joke. And I love it. Um, And it's actually true. So Ross says, no, Homo habilis was erect. Australopithecus was never fully erect. Well, maybe he was nervous. (laughs) Very well done. Yeah, I enjoyed that. But actually, just so you know, it's not that common. It doesn't happen to every guy. And it is a big deal. (laughs) another one of my favorite Rachel moments there very funny it's marvelous so back to that joke though it is actually true so um during human evolution one of the uh, very early species was Australopithecus and they um evolved in eastern Africa about four million years ago so a long time Mm. ago and Australopithecus wasn't fully erect hence the The pun on the word about being erect that's Um, that's the incongruity there isn't it Yes, it's the um, we're talking about something very nerdy and intelligent, and then we're smutting it up with a sex joke, with a sex joke indeed. Um, and it's oh, so it's a mixture of the two: incongruity, oh, and repression, and, and repression point, as well, all point. mixed together. Good Bonus. spot. So Homo habilis lived from about two point eight to one point four million years ago, and that species evolved in South and East Africa as well. And they had very small molars, but larger brains than the Australopithecus. And they made tools from stone and they maybe used animal bones for tools oh, as cool. well. There you go. Well, as we, as we drift towards the end of our episode, um, we do mm. like to kind of round off our podcast, don't we, with a little bit of the odd research because we do, we do find some really strange things <laughs> as we go along. So we're going to head back to the Ig Nobel Prizes for this, these kind of um, prizes for silly but genuine science. And an Ig Nobel Prize was awarded for a 2014 study which found that when you attach a weighted stick to the rear end of a chicken, (laughs) yeah, no, genuinely, (laughs) stick with me, the chicken then walks in a manner similar to that in which dinosaurs were thought to have walked. I mean, who's, who does that? That's bonkers. We all, I mean, we all know that birds, you know, birds are dinosaurs or incredibly closely related to dinosaurs. They're theropods. But who oh, said no. 
Oh, well, well done. Yeah. <laughs> so who said? Let's see if we can make this chicken look a bit more like. Or, or okay, maybe it was okay. We think that dinosaurs have much heavier tails than chickens. Mm. So if we give chickens a more heavy tail, maybe that we can learn how they adjust to walk, and that'll teach us about dinosaurs. I don't know. I don't know what discussion happened <laughs> in this research research room, but um, fascinating. I'd love to see a picture of this research. I would. It's just it's just the weirdest thing. Mm, and presumably thing. no chickens were genuinely harmed during this research, but I don't know. Yeah, but well, I'd hope so. You'd hope not. Because otherwise, yeah. Mm. So I guess we should finish by advising you all to go away now and try to achieve true unagi. <laughs> unagi is a state of total awareness. Only by achieving true unagi can you be prepared for any danger that may befall you. Well, actually, uh, it's the Japanese word for a freshwater eel, unagi, and it's got nothing to do with karate, as uh, Ross would say. Mm. Yes. And on that note, that's all we have time for today. We hope you enjoyed it and maybe go back and have a listen to some of the other podcast episodes that we've got. Karen, what's your favourite in our back catalogue? Uh, I love um, some of our comedy ones, but I absolutely love The Walking Dead. I love the f- talking about, you know, um, all of the, the undead uh, and all the science behind mm, that. We've got I some zombie that. science in. That was mm, fascinating. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, okay. How about you? I am going to encourage people to go back and listen to Killing Eve, I think. That was one oh, of my favourites. Yes. We talked about spies yeah. and murder and all of that mm. kind of um, clandestine science, which was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and that was another live show, so bonus. It was indeed. So how many quotes did we spot? We joked about mm. you always getting the um, the long words <laughs> in the scripts, but then I have to do this bit, which is read out yeah, everything that, is that we've true. done. Yeah, it is, it is quite long for this episode as well. We got loads. Okay, quick. Mm. I'm going to rattle them off. How are you doing? Could I be any more excited? Oh my God. Uh, not delivered in quite the same way. Um, <laughs> I know. 18 pages front and back. We were on a break. You sang the theme tune. We, we, or we said the theme tune. Mm. Um, what if I don't want to be a shoe? What if I want to be a purse or a hat? We pivoted several times. Several times. The yeah. lobster fact came in there. We talked about Ross being the divorcer. We said, mm-hmm. see, he's her lobster. You sang Smell and Guess, <laughs> which was beautiful. Um, you can't just give up. Is that what a dinosaur would do? We had your lovely Homo habilis astrophil. Astrolopithecus. Good job, you had that, not me. Mm. Um, just so you know, it's not that common. It doesn't happen to every guy, and it is a big deal. And the lovely bit about Unangi. So that was a good. That was a good. Yeah, that was lots actually. We did get loads in, didn't we? So um, hopefully you enjoyed that, everyone, and you will go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes. So. Um, enjoy don't forget to subscribe to Small Screen Science on your favourite podcast platform leave us a cheeky mm-hmm. five star review because we're a small independent podcast yes. and that actually does a huge help mm. in helping us find new audiences and you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram just search for Small Screen Science yeah so thank you very much for listening see you Bye. soon